Let's open the Word of God, please, to Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 49, and we're going to start today in verse 13. Genesis 49, verse 13. Looking at the life of Joseph, and last Sunday, in the first part of Genesis 49, we saw that Jacob, the father of Joseph and 11 brothers, and I mean Jacob, and I'm I'm locked up, David. I'm going to have to try something real quick. Sing another verse of amazing grace in your head. <laughs> Kirk, is it you or Tyler that causes these technical problems with my stuff? We're going to blame you for it anyway. Okay, I'm going to have to get out of there and start over. I think this will work now. Billy Graham never worked with... Uh, Good idea, Dave. Billy Graham never worked with PowerPoint. And there are more than one reason for that. Yeah, now we're good. Yeah, uh, we're looking at Joseph, the son of Jacob. Uh, has got 11 brothers, ten, uh, nine of whom he didn't get, get along with very well for a long time. But why is that important to us in 2019? Well, that's important because you realize that the Old Testament books were written before the first coming of Christ, and we're living on the New Testament side of the ledger. But in the Old Testament, God made it increasingly clear who the Savior would be by defining very specifically who he would be, where he would come, what he would do, why he would do it, and when he would do it. And when you're thinking about the person who would be qualified to be the Messiah, we are seeing uh, a focus on the fact that it's going to be through this family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob in this chapter in Genesis is talking to his 12 sons. And last week, and we'll emphasize this again in a minute, we saw that it wasn't now just the Messiah's got to be a Jewish man through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's a particular tribe. And you might think it's the tribe of Joseph. And of course, there isn't a tribe of Joseph. Because he was blessed by having two tribes. His two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, became heads of tribes to double the honor of Joseph. But it's not Joseph who God chose. God often works in ways you wouldn't expect. Have you noticed that? He chooses Judah, and we'll talk about that. But we were emphasizing the fact in this chapter where God allows Jacob to see the future and talk about the trajectory of his 12 sons and their tribes. We emphasize the fact that human destiny, including yours and mine, is God's design. And he knows the future, and he can reveal the future because he has just flat planned the future. So we're going to pick up where we left off. It was kind of a cliffhanger, Lannis, so I'm glad you wanted to see the second part of that. But we're seeing Jacob as a prophet anticipating the direction of his family. And for us, as New Testament believers, we know that involves the that involves Christmas. That involves the birth of Jesus as a male, a human being, not an alien or an angel, as a male, not a female, as a Semite, as a Jew, as a member of the tribe of Judah, family of David, and on and on the prophecies go. And he fulfilled them literally in his first advent, and he fulfilled the outstanding ones about the second advent just as literally. But before we feed on the word of God this morning, let's pray we'll be teachable to this as transforming truth, and also let's Remember those who protect and serve us, including these folks in the U.S. military that we know and love, our peace officers and our firefighters. And let's have a word of prayer.
Father, I do pray that you would um, guide, direct, protect, and use these men and women that literally put their lives on the line to protect our freedoms, among which is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And we're thankful because we'd worship Jesus anyway, but uh, to this day we have those protections and they're protected by our military and our peace officers and our firefighters. And we pray for those especially who are believers, that you keep them strong in the faith. They deal with a lot of difficult situations that could be very demoralizing. And we pray for their extended families too that serve in very distinct ways also as they support their family members in those endeavors. And we pray for each one here today. I pray if anyone's not trusted from the depth of their heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Savior, you'd open their eyes to see and believe. And for those of us who are believers, uh, let this not just be ancient historical information, but I pray the Holy Spirit who inspired this text and has preserved it would illuminate so that it would be transforming truth and affect the way we think, act, and choose. And we pray that that process would glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, as we say that human destiny, including yours, including, uh, hey, Dustin's younger brother's here today. I mean, uh, Dustin has a different hairdo than that. So Dustin, uh, yeah, Dustin's a man of many hairdos. And he gets irritable if you stress that too much. So we're not going to stress that too much. But uh, I'm stuck with one hairdo, and I don't like it. But I do the best I can. Well, I got, you got to play the cards you're dealt. But uh, think about the, your destiny. I mean, God knows what's going to happen next week and next year and when you get to go to heaven and all those good things. So to warm up your abstract thought capacity, three cartoons about the future. Number one, uh, this guy is talking to another fellow, and he says, My idea of planning for the future is programming the DVR. That's what he, that's what he thinks about that. I didn't say these were funny. They're just trying to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. Here's a commencement speaker saying, as you face the future, be ever mindful that your one true purpose in life is to get those student loans paid off before you die. I knew that wasn't funny. It's too painful. My wife uh, worked hard at Horace Mann, so my kids didn't have college debt, and I'm very thankful to her, and they're very thankful to her for that. And here's the one I'm hoping is going to work, the last one. you got a guy uh, predicting the end tomorrow. What did Jesus say about setting dates? Don't do it. So that, we've got a problem. And he's clearly probably on skid row somewhere because we got this guy who's seen this fellow with the sign Probably the same sign many, many times. But he's got a new sign. And look what the guy with the sign who says the world's going to end tomorrow says to the guy on Skid Row. He says, how do you like my new sign? It was a bargain, and the printing is guaranteed not to fade for at least 10 years. <laughs> Be aware of those who set dates or tell you the rapture is going to happen tomorrow because it might happen before that. And we're supposed to live with an expectation anyway because you're only one heartbeat away, Right? So that's that. Human destiny is God's design. This is a chapter I told Tyler and Kirk is kind of obscure, but it's really pretty cool when you see what's going on here. And so we're going to see Jacob. And as I say, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the human glide path to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, he's predicting the trajectories as a prophet of his 12 sons and their tribes. And let me say two things as a disclaimer, like we said last week. 
as we read about Jacob talking about the tendencies of the sons and the way that will affect the tribe's behaviors uh, in the future, each person, including each believer's particular bent, uh, our basic personality tendencies, including our specific strengths and our specific weaknesses, are not excuses for our sins in those areas, but they can help explain why we might be tempted to sin in those areas. I've got areas of weakness you probably don't have. I've got areas of strength um, you don't have, so I'm happy to do some of my areas of strength. I'm not so happy about my areas of weakness. I may have a tendency to want to redefine or rationalize those. That's one reason you should get married, because your spouse will help you see those. Uh, and that, that really is true, right? Uh, two are better than one, because one falls in a hole, the other one can pull him out. So these tendencies which he's using to track uh, his son's tribes do not doom individuals to do those things, but it might explain why they'd be tempted to do certain things. And then also, in Ezekiel 18, especially a whole chapter in the Old Testament, but really all over Scripture, we're, we're told that individuals are not morally responsible for the sins of their parents or the sins of their children. Now, sometimes, you know, we contribute greatly to some of that stuff, but for the most part, I see a lot of parents with false guilt because they raise them in a Christian home and then they go way off the reservation. And um, I wasn't there 24-7, but I don't think it's the godly parents' fault. I don't think it's the good teachers' fault. I don't believe it's the police department's fault when people do things they shouldn't do. So this is not uh, saying that these people are doomed. It just says this is going to be the general trajectory of the progeny of each one of these 12 men who are going to produce the 12 tribes of Israel. So, uh, and it is true that certain types of sin can tend to characterize family units over generations. We've all seen that. And I won't get into the unfortunate Hatfield and McCoy feud, which I have personally have ended myself because I have no animosity toward any Hatfield that I'm consciously aware of. All right, let's do a brief review of last time. We looked at the first four of the sons last time in verses 1 through 12. We'll look at the next eight, the final eight today. But first, in verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 49, Jacob prophesies to and about his first son, Reuben. And he says, Reuben, you shall not have preeminence like the firstborn normally would have had by custom in the ancient Near East, but because of seriously bad choices, including in the area of sexual sin, you're going to continue to be a son, but you're not going to get the double blessing that normally went to the, second, to the first son, at the discretion of the father always, but that was the pattern. And in fact, Reuben, you might expect to be the one through which the Messiah will come, but it won't be Reuben. It turns out to be Judah. Okay? But again, sin can affect certain special blessings, but it doesn't uh, unplug your sonship uh, from, in this case, Reuben to, Judah, to, uh, to Jacob or for the believer. We don't lose our salvation when we sin. We don't have to be born again and again and again and again. But when we sin, we need to confess it, isolate it, and move on. And if you've got sticky fingers, don't go to Walmart by yourself. Just don't put yourself in situations. Feed the spirit, starve the flesh, right? Sometimes people need different playmates, different playthings, and different uh, playgrounds. That's based on their sin patterns. The second son, really the second and third son addressed last week, were Simeon and Levi in verses 5 through 7. Jacob, as a prophet, says Simeon and, Le- Simeon and Levi are brothers. Well, they're all brothers, but they're like two peas in a pod. They're very similar in their personalities. Their swords 
are implements of violence. In their anger, they murdered men. I will scatter them in Israel. Uh, these guys had an anger management problem in one particular situation in Genesis 38. They massacred all the males in a village called Shechem. Mega violence, not good. And in fact, Simeon would not be given a land grant after they conquer the promised land 400 years later, but he's given certain cities as a tribe in Judah, the larger land grant. And Levi, as the line of the priest, was not given a land grant territory, but he had 48 different cities in all the other 12 brothers' so, uh, areas. So that was fulfilled literally, as all this is, although some of it's more uh, concrete. Some of these prophecies are more concrete than others. Now, verses 8 through 12, this is the, really the important one. Jacob prophesies to and about his son Judah, and as you know, that will be the tribe through which the Lord Jesus Christ will come. Verse 10 very important, uh, specific prophecy about who Christ is going to be. Uh, this is a breakdown of the family unit. You want to see a dysfunctional family that God used greatly despite their dysfunctions. You got one guy, four wives, that's a problem. We're looking at the first four sons here in verses 1 through 12. And the fourth son is Judah. And we read, among other things, verse 10, uh, Judah is going to be like the lion of the tribes, uh, generally, and then specifically, a member of his tribe is going to do really big things. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff. As far as the nation of Israel, this tribe of Judah will be where the legitimate kings will come, climaxing with Jesus Christ, of course. And the scepter will not leave between his feet until Shiloh, and that's a term for a person. It means peace. But this is a personal reference to a person until Shiloh comes to whom shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a title for the Jesus Christ. It's a title for the Messiah revealed in um, here Genesis 49 as we go from he's going to be a Jewish person to he's going to be a member of a particular tribe. Then we're going to be told he's going to be a member of a particular family. It gets more and more specific as you go through time. This explains, among other things, why the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, starts with a genealogy. What You know, modern Americans don't want to read genealogies. They're boring, right? But there are reasons for all the genealogies in your Bible. And the genealogy that starts the Gospel of Matthew is proving to his Jewish discipleship group he's writing this to that Jesus qualifies. And when you hear... Things like, uh, well, he's just the uh, illegitimate product of Mary and Joseph, which is what people like John Dominic Crossan, who's a New Testament scholar, says about our Lord Jesus Christ. That's blasphemy. But New Testament says, let me give you the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham gave Isaac, and Isaac had a son named uh, Jacob, and Judah was his son who is going to be the uh, head of the line that will lead to the Messiah, family of David. And then we have Jacob, a different Jacob, his father of Joseph, husband of Mary. Now watch this, Kirk. By whom Jesus was born. You see, Joseph is the legal father. That lines up legally. But by whom in the original Greek is the feminine personal pronoun. That's Matthew saying, hey, legally Jesus qualifies. But he wasn't Joseph's son biologically. Virgin conception, virgin birth. Uh, Jesus comes through Mary, not Joseph. But legally, it lines up. So watch this. Here's our basic synthetic chart of the Bible, right? Old Testament 
teaches that all humans sin and die, but the Savior's coming. New Testament after the first life, first advent of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. Hey, when we say he is exalted, what do we mean by that? He's not ruling the world right now visibly, is he? What happened 40 days after the resurrection? The ascension. Sit down at my right hand, Psalm 110 prophesied, until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet at the second advent. Why is he sitting down? Because he's tired. He's finished with his mission for first advent. And when the Father initiates second advent, he'll come right from that. But anyway, New Testament says Jesus is the one who was promised, and he's coming back, right? So we're looking at the early phases of this happening in the Joseph story. You might think Joseph would be the line. It's not. And once we get to chapter 49, we know it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. That's the tribe we need to key on, right? So bottom line, last time we said Judah and his tribe would ultimately bring the ultimate king who will rule over the ultimate kingdom at what we would call the second advent and thereafter. And so the second person of the Trinity, the God-man Savior, a human being, a male, a Jew, a member of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10, family of David would be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world in two roles and two advents. One Savior King, two advents. At his first advent, he is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but those of the whole world. And the second advent, he will end human history on God's terms, visibly, undeniably, and supernaturally. Is that good or what? Martha Ratliff would say, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Yes, it is wonderful. Okay. Now, that's what we saw last week. Let's pick it up now as we'll look at Jacob more briefly, except when we get to Joseph prophesying the trajectory of his son's tribes and his sons, beginning in uh, verse 13. And I think uh, he's going to kind of bounce around in the way he labels these sons, but they're all connected here. Look at verse um, 13. Jacob continues, and he says, Zebulun, that's one of his sons, will dwell toward the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. And when you look at the map here, this is a map from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, my personal favorite one-volume New Testament commentary, and it shows you how the tribes would be distributed after the conquest. We've got Israel in Egypt, right, at the end of Genesis, 400 years later, they've been in slavery for most of that time. Moses leads them out of Egypt, but that generation doesn't conquer the land because they refuse to. Under Joshua, they conquer the land, and they divide the promised land amongst the tribes, right? And so we're going to see Zebulun mentioned there, and he's right on the Via Maris, which was the main uh, interstate highway from Damascus to the north to Memphis in uh, Egypt, not Memphis, Tennessee. And so he's dealing with all these kind of uh, uh, economic kind of things uh, based on trade all over the Mediterranean that would come in. From uh, the, the from the west, look at verse fourteen to fifteen. We go from Zebulun to Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey, and that's kind of a compliment. But don't you call me that, okay? There's a strong donkey. He's probably calling me a weak donkey, right? Especially now my back's messing me up. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down. And by the way, 
My, my back problems have gone away until I played golf finally with Ken uh, Wanzer. And I thought his back was going to hurt him because he was laughing so much at how bad I was playing. Uh, I thought I was going to hurt him, but then uh, it didn't happen. And Ken actually shot a 66, right? Or was it 62? No, 66, right? No, I said I shot my age. Yeah. So are you 18? Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, you, you hear about great things in golf, and you tend to think a hole-in-one is the greatest thing in golf. The hardest thing, the thing that happens the least in golf is somebody shooting their age for 18 holes on a regulation golf course. Not putt-putt. I mean, think about it. I mean, to, to shoot in the 60s, which is always good, you have to be in the 60s. That happens to very few people. I don't think I'll ever do that myself, but that's, that was impressive. We ought to, man, way to go. If, if I ever shot my age... I just would quit. You know, I know I've already basically become just a ceremonial golfer. I play every four years whether I have to or not. But I hit balls once a week on good weeks. I couldn't do it last week. We had a very busy week last week, but uh, uh, it's, it's all good. But, yeah, this guy's a strong donkey, and he, trust me, he wasn't tempted to, to leave the office and go play golf in his day because they hadn't invented it yet. Lying down between the sheepfolds, when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave of forced labor. In the history of Israel, after the conquest, you have this period of the judges for several hundred years where there is no uh, organized governmental structures, kind of like the Articles of Confederation. Everybody's doing their own thing, as we're told several times. And in Joshua 16... Because Israel did not mop up all the scattered Canaanite resistance, there were certain areas, including the area near Issachar, where Canaanites controlled the area, and uh, Issachar submitted willingly. Rather than fighting, they submitted to being uh, kind of forced labor for the Canaanites for a period of long, many years, and so that's anticipating that. Look at verses 16 through 18. Jacob prophesies to and about his son Dan. Right, we got good news and we got bad news here, Dustin. Dan, his tribe will judge his people. That's the good news. As one of the tribes of Israel, here's the bad news. Dan will be a serpent. What do you know about serpents in the scripture? Uh, the root for uh, the word serpent means upright, shining thing. And somehow, through despite that etymology, the word became to refer to a crawling reptile. I wonder why that etymology goes back to upright, shining thing. When the serpent appears in the garden, he's an upright, shining thing, you know. He's cursed to be turned, to kind of be morphed into that slithery, scary. I don't like snakes. I don't like a lot of things, but I'm, I'm not a snake person. Dan will be a serpent in the way, a horned snake. That's never good in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward for your salvation in response to that. You've got major leaders from Dan, like Samson, but uh, in Judges 18, again, you've got the Wild West period of ancient Israel, Dan, the tribe Dan, was the first tribe that in a major way embraced open idolatry of worshiping other gods and had a big influence on the nation in a bad way. So this prophecy is anticipating that. Look at verse 19. Jacob prophesies to and about his son Gad. Now here's something you won't read in the commentaries. You've heard the expression Egad, right? Egad, you know. I can't believe this happened or whatever. Egad, OSU actually beat OU in football. That's the kind of thing we say every 10 years, you know. That goes back, many people don't know this, to 
Ezekiel Gad, who was always doing surprising things. So we shortened that as Egad. No, I just made that up. Uh, that's not what that is. Just seeing if you're listening, okay? As for Gad, raiders shall raid him. Now I wonder why raiders would raid Gad first. After they conquer the land and deal with the embedded Canaanite resistance, not always very well, you've got Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan River where the Ammonites and the Moabites are, and they're always giving you some trouble. So Gad's right in the middle of that, and he's kind of the first group to be attacked by these marauding raiders that would constantly... It didn't start with Gaza after, you know, the 82 war... Uh, it's been going on for thousands of years. So he was in a, an important strategic position and forced to always be at the ready militarily. So as for Gad, raiders shall raid him. Happened all the time. But he will raid at their heels. He'll response. So that land tract given to Gad made them, that tribe, kind of the first line of defense when groups like the Ammonites and Moabites would start beating the war drums. So this all makes sense when you compare it with Old Testament history. Look at verse 20. we got another one of those typographical errors that's totally my fault. Uh, I didn't mean for this to say on your notes. If you're looking there, Jacob prophesies to him about his son, Asher, not Frank's Dan. Just drop the Dan. That's what happens when you copy and paste things. <laughs> and you don't properly eliminate the Dan there. So just if you got a pen... In fact, I'm so obsessive-compulsive, I've got a Sharpie here. I'll come around and do it myself, but just scratch through the dam. But I did want to make it clear, we're not talking about Asher Franks here, Michelle, because I know that's, when you think of Asher, that's what you're thinking about. But um, pretty cool thing about him, uh, and he just happened to be given one of the most, uh, where is Asher, right there, uh, right, access to the Mediterranean and really fertile soil. And so his tribe would be characterized by a strong work ethic, ethic and blessed with particularly fertile land. So as for Asher, his food shall be rich. You could translate that abundant. He's going to be able to grow lots of food. And in addition to the staples, he'll also be able to yield royal dainties, probably fruits primarily that would be treasured by the uh, the elites. Uh, yeah, strong work ethic, particularly fertile land, and would not only be the breadbasket for the staples like wheat, but would produce a lot of good things that the kings would. So if the king likes you, uh, you're going to be treated well. In Shreveport, when I did play more golf, we had several Air Force pilots in our church because across the way in Bossier City, you've got Air, a Barksdale Air Force base, B-52 base, uh, KC-10 base. And they had a golf course on Barksdale, kind of like they've got one or two golf courses at Fort Sill. And my friend Jason Rivet, whose wife's on the prayer list, just had a hip replacement last week. What is the deal with knee replacements and hip replacements with this group? Come on. Let's go. If you haven't had yours yet, sign up. You're going to get one anyway, so just get it over with. And Danny, bless his heart, is, is just recovering. But anyway, yeah, uh, Jason would say, you know, you can tell whether or not the base commander is a golfer. Because when the base commander, and they change them every two years to give them the experience. When the base commander at Barksdale was, uh, I'm sure this is true at most places, was a golfer. Suddenly the golf course was looking really good. Ken, that's when you want to go play Barksdale Air Force Base, when the base commander is a golfer. When the base commander is a tennis player, a racquetball player, forget it. You know, they don't know the greens anymore very often. So, uh, you know, when the king likes Asher because he doesn't, know, doesn't just feed the population, he also provides special, uh, unique kind of fruits for the, for the court, that's great. Look at verse 21. Jacob prophesies to and from his 
son Naphtali. We'll go between that and the map, just showing you kind of who's the who the mom is. One dad, four different moms. Uh, Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. What does it mean when we say it's raining cats and dogs? That is called an idiom. Not an idiot, Tim, but an idiom. And it's something we understand what it means, but it doesn't mean literally what it sounds like. So you've got to be careful. It's not what it means, what it says, it's what it means. What, is, what does raining cats and dogs mean? That small mammals are running, falling out of the sky? No, raining really hard. That's just an English idiom. And uh, a doe let loose was just an idiom for quickness and agility. Okay? And again, this, this makes sense because you look at the map. And we're like, oh, well, what's that? With two of those. It's kind of, oh, shoot. You know, I want to go back to that. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking at what? Naphtali. Where's Naphtali on the map? Way up here. Now, the weird thing is, uh, this was the way the land was divided under Joshua. But sometime later, Dan, the group that got into idolatry big time, they decided they didn't like to live near the Gaza Strip. So they actually moved further north unauthorized, and it caused some problems. But Naphtali is right above the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. Carol, you ever been to the sea of, sea of Galilee? Is it a real place? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So Naphtali's up there, and the invasions, although the Ammonites and the Moabites live right there, so they didn't invade Gad. But all the big ones, like Assyria and Babylonia, they're over here, and there's a big desert here. Can you see that on the map here? Right there is the desert, right? So you had to go around and come in from the north. So all the major invasions always come from the north. So at least on paper, until Dan got in the way, Naphtali's on the first line. He's kind of the head of the sphere, you might say, and very important. So he's very quick and agile physically when it comes to military, but also, beautiful words, he's quick and he's smooth diplomatically. He needed to be that too. So that was a characteristic of that tribe. Not every individual, but generally true. Very important, especially in times of national defense. Balak, one of the judges, belonged to that tribe. Now, in the same way the first four tribes are mentioned and focused on Judah, now we're looking at the last eight and we're focusing on Joseph. Okay, Verses 22 through 26, we're talking about Joseph. You'll notice, if you scan this, there is no land track to Joseph. Actually, there is, right? Because Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons, were adopted by Jacob, and they were the uh, seeds of two tribes, which is a way to honor Joseph, even though there is no tribe named after Joseph, named after his two sons. If somebody wanted to do something nice in my honor and wanted to honor Jamie and Jonathan, I would be pleased as punch. And I very seldom drink punch. But I'd be very pleased, you know, and that's the kind of thing that happened here. Joseph is a faithful bow by a spring. His branches run over a wall. It's really big and prosperous. The archers bitterly attacked him. He had all kinds of problems and enemies, including his, his older brothers, shot and harassed him. But his bow remained firm, spiritually and uh, physically too. And his arms were agile, were strong. From the strength of the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. The mighty one of Jacob is a reference to God. From there is the shepherd. That's a reference to God. The stone of Israel. That's another reference to God. This uh, tribute to Joseph really honors Joseph's God. Because he was such a strong believer. That's his secret. 
from the God of your father who helps you by the Almighty, Shaddai, El Shaddai, who blesses you with blessings from heaven above. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. In his generation, Joseph was the man. He was the leader. Rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, going to be worked to death in Egypt, rises to the prime minister, saves the family in the region, and becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And you know the story, right? But he was the man. He received the double portion blessing that normally would have gone to the oldest Reuben, but it went to him through his father. And beyond that foundational generation, Joseph would continue to be special because he'd be the source not of one tribe like all the other guys, but of two tribes. Let me read briefly from the expositor's Bible commentary about that. Joseph, like Judah in the first 12 verses, attracts a longer passage, more detailed treatment in these prophecies because of his importance. Back in chapter 48, where we saw the two sons adopted in the place of Joseph, to honor Joseph by Jacob. Chapter 48 was concerned chiefly with the mutual relationship of the two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, which descended directly from Joseph. But here, in chapter 49, where we're reading today, they are viewed as a unit, and in fact they were given the heart of central Israel when Ephraim is on this side, half the tribe of Manasseh is over here, so they control a big block right in the very center of Israel, again, a way to honor Joseph and to remind the nation about Joseph and his faith. Um, there, uh, the two tribes descending from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, but here they're viewed as a unit in central Israel, prospering and seeking to expand under severe pressure from the local population, but winning through the help of God. The emphatic promise of blessings for this, these two tribes, for Joseph represented by the two tribes, contrasts with the loneliness that the individual Joseph had suffered in Egypt. The principle is suffering will be replaced by glory in God's time, in God's way. Welcome to Christian Life 101. Cheer up, it's going to get worse, and then it's going to get a whole lot better. You ever heard me say that before? Now, while we're here, let me ask a question. How do you get 12 tribes if you have 12 sons and one of those sons has two tribes? Isn't that 13? Yes, Bible breath, you're correct. Good. But let me say this about that. In most contexts, the term, the 12 tribes of Israel just refers to all Israels, all Israel. In the same way, the 12 in the New Testament refers to all the apostles, even if you only got 11 there, just as a collective term, generally. That's the way it's often used. In other times, when you're talking about the land grant, and this is how the land was distributed under Joshua to the 12 tribes, you're talking about 13 tribes minus one, because Levi is special. Levi is the tribe of the priests. He's not given a land grant here. He's given 48 cities among the other 12 and that kind of thing. So you just got to kind of realize that quite often the 12 refers to everybody, but sometimes it refers to everybody but Levi, and the context tells you. Uh, specifically here in Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed. He's going to die. He's going to die next week. Okay, you got to come back one more week. To see, see, he's going to die. Um, and uh, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens because I get nervous the first time I do anything. That's just me, but I'm just telling you. But uh, here in... Uh, Genesis 49, 
Jacob on his deathbed, empowered by God to predict the future of his sons, is talking to his 12 sons, and that includes Joseph and Levi, and they're all being counted as the sons. That's why you get 12 there for sure. Now notice these titles for God. You know, we have this memory aid to help you remember the major uh, attributes of God. Uh, it's a Swedish word, Turj live, but nobody can remember that. So we break it down to two juniors live. The major attributes of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's one God. The Father is God. He has all these attributes, but he's not the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Shiloh, the Messiah, the Shepherd, the Rock, is deity, but he's not the Father nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's a he. He's a person with mind, will, emotion, but he's not the Son or the Father, but he's full deity. This is what deity looks like. There's only one God in three persons, and I ain't him, and neither are you. And that's very important. God is true, not truthful. He's real. He's the source of all reality. He's real, and there ain't no reality without him. Okay? Are you sitting down? I'm going to get off the subject here. Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist who came out recently as an agnostic, but a hard agnostic, number six on a scale of seven, he said, this is all he has to if anything now exists, if the universe is imaginary, something or someone must be eternal outside of time and space, or otherwise the source of everything in time and space popped in existence out of nothing and by nothing. Now, when uh, the Big Bang became the physics that uh, conventional science accepted, I'm not a prophet, but I said, this is too good for us, because you have a Big Bang, you've got to have a Big Banger. Big Bang means a beginning. You have a beginner. Beginner. I may disagree with the mechanism and the chronology, but the Big Bang is exactly what Genesis one one is saying, right? And I thought this is too. This lines up with us too much. They're going to have to come up with something else. But the only option they've got is the source of everything popped in existence out of nothing and by nothing. And you know what they're saying now? Richard Dawkins is saying, "Give me one big miracle at the beginning, and I can explain everything else." And I'm saying, no, I'm not giving you that. You know what nothing is? Nothing is what rocks think about. Okay? Now, there is a book, A Universe from Nothing. But they say you've got to have a quantum vacuum, and G's got to be 9.8 meters per second. And I'm saying, no, I'm not giving you a quantum vacuum, and there's no reason G has to be, not big G, gravity has to be 9.8 meters per second. It could be anything. That's why they have a multiverse. There's no proof of multiverse. There can be no proof of multiverse. But they're saying there must be a huge number of universes because all of the major constants, all 13 of them, are just right for human life on this planet. And that couldn't happen by chance. And we know God didn't do it. How do they know that? That's their assumption. They start there, right? So professing themselves to become wise, they became, they believe the source of everything popped into existence out of nothing, by nothing, in a single instant. Now, that's magic, but that's not science, okay? So the party of science doesn't do math that well, much less science. But anyway, God is true. He's the unmoved mover. He's the creator, and he's the source of everything that's real. He's real, and all reality goes back to him. What does triune mean? It's that. Nobody would invent that in the human mind because nobody totally understands that, but that's the way he's revealed himself. Transcendent means he's outside of time and space. If anything now exists, something or someone must be eternal outside of time and space. You know who it is? God the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. They didn't create because they needed Kirk and Brad, because they were lonely. They're perfectly content. They're perfectly self-contained. They don't need us. They want us. 
That's hard to believe, but it's true. That's the TTT. Omniscient means all-knowing. God knows everything about everything, including the worst thing you've ever done, the best thing you've ever done, what you're going to do next week. Uh, He knew that um, Ken was going to shoot 66. And so Carol wanted him to stay home and mow grass that day. And he said, no, dear, I can't do that. I I sense something special is going to happen. And you were right, weren't you? Uh, What does omnipotent mean? God can do anything, right? means there is no finite limit to God's power. God can't lie. God can't die. God can't stop being God. There's a lot of things God can't do. He can't do anything that violates his, his character. But there's no finite limit to God's power. Omnipresent means even though he's outside of time and space, transcendent, he's also everywhere in time and space all at the same time. Not spread out like a pad of butter, but 100% everywhere all the time. So even on your out-of-town business trips, he's with you there. Just and righteous is holiness, but just uh, means uh, inherently fair. Righteous means inherently morally perfect. Sovereign means he's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He didn't consult me about the purpose. He likes it. It glorifies him. And we seek and submit and keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when we can't see any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Here's my last four. I know Homer's favorite is God's love. Hearing his love, not that we love God, but he loved us and gave his son to be the payment for our sins. Right? Immutable means God doesn't change. God has zero potential. You know, you can, you can, statistics can make anything sound bad, right? God's got zero potential. He's, he's, in, uh, immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't learn, he never says, oops, he never says, I never, never heard that before. I didn't know they'd do that. He even knew I was going to just say that, which is terrible. Veracity means everything he affirms is true. He's, that's where he's truthful. Both in science and scripture. I've got a biology degree. I kind of wanted to be a scientist. Now I'm a Bible mechanic. And if you understand, if, when you see these conflicts, you're either misunderstanding the data of science or misunderstanding the data of scripture or you're not correlating them correctly. I think evangelicals are better scholars than uh, liberal critical scholars because if they see a conflict, they'll say, well, it's just a mistake in the Bible. And I'm going to say, no, that's not possible. We need more information. We may not have enough information to correlate them, but if you get enough information, it's always going to correlate. And then eternal means from everlasting to everlasting. The universe you live in demands an eternal transcendent creator, just based on logic. Uh, the if statement there, and that's what you've got. And I want you to see that in it's, it's beautiful in this passage that you know extols Joseph and glory and honors Joseph. It's really honoring Joseph's God and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, we've got one more uh, tribe to look at. Let's look at Benny's tribe. That's, that's what they called him, but his name's Benjamin, right? Benjamin, verse twenty-seven, is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the spoil. The youngest brother of the twelve, the baby brother, uh, would be very special. He'd produce a very strong, brave, tough tribe that were kind of like the 101st Airborne kind of special forces in our U.S. military today, the tip of the spear quite often. And I love this. Go to Philippians 3 real quick in the New Testament. Maybe the two best-known members of the tribe of Benjamin in biblical history are King Saul in the Old Testament and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And in Philippians 3, verse 4 and following, we have Paul, the Pharisee who repented from his dead good works. You don't just repent of your sin, it's wrong and it's on me. You've got to repent of your dead works. 
the Holy Spirit lets you see that, that I'm not good enough to cover over my sins. You know, we can't be saved by good works, can we? Paul says, if anybody's got confidence to stack up their good deeds and try to earn heaven that way, which could never work for anybody because God's perfect and we ain't at our best, I could do that. He says, if anyone has a mind to put confidence into what they can do for God and, then, and maybe I could earn it somehow, I far more, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, right according to the Old Testament law of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? That tough uh, warrior tribe, and I think as a Pharisee, Paul's a very tough, business-minded, let's kill more Christians. He was on a business trip to kill Christians on the way to Damascus when he got saved, right? A Hebrew Hebrews asked the law of Pharisee, the most zealous of the sects, S-E-C-T-S, don't get too excited out there, of Judaism. As the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness found in the law based on obeying the rules, found blameless. Now this is his opinion, but uh, uh, it's not bragging if it's true. But whatever things were gained for me when I thought I could earn my salvation by climbing up a ladder made of my works, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing through faith, active receptive trust. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's on me. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. I receive you as my Savior. And as a believer, you're able to have the privilege of following him with a worthy walk and, and following him as your Lord of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them to be rubbish. That's scubia in the original. Look it up. It's kind of nasty. I saw some scubia this morning. Mason had his uh, parking, what do you call it, parking play? Pack and play. <laughs> this portable crib next to our bed last night. He slept 11 hours. You know what that means? He's, he's three years old. Two and a half. But he's, he's very advanced two and a half. But but Mason, he sleeps 11 straight hours, okay? Which means he either has a clean conscience or a really bad memory. But, but anyway, <laughs> he woke up, and it wasn't me. It was Grandma. Now, becoming a grandfather wasn't a problem for me. Realizing I was married to Grandma, that was a problem. <laughs> I'm just telling you. That's just me. She's my first wife, by the way. But. <laughs> anyway, back to Scubia. Kirk, you can look this up later. It's really bad. But uh, he's using a really rough term. Yeah, uh, Mason had slept 11 hours, and he had a very messy diaper. And you know what that means. And I was looking at scubia. That's the word he uses there. It's a rough, rough word. But he's saying, that's the ultimate blasphemy. Christ died to pay for my sins, and now I'm going to say, well, thanks a lot, but I, I can do it myself. You know, why would God send Christ to die for Jack's sins if Jack could earn his own salvation? In fact, in Galatians, Paul says twice, you know, if there's any other way, God would have said, did the best you can, and maybe somebody like Saul can save himself, but there's no other way. But he says, uh, watch this, all that stuff I'd stacked up that I thought would earn my way maybe into heaven, and you never, you have, you know, total permanent, uh, was eternal insecurity when you think you might earn it, you know, gain Christ, and watch this, this is the key, this is the gospel. And be found in him, as far as my standing, first day as a believer, worst day as a believer, last day as a believer, be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, not even a righteousness based on the law God did give at Sinai to Moses. If you're going to try to obey rules to, to earn salvation, that'd be the rules to earn, to, to obey, but be found in him, okay? Jan Pavlovic has that standing as a believer. Kylene, you got that standing as a believer, Jesus, he sees Jesus. This is, this is Kyleen. This is Jesus. 
You've got that standing in Jesus. You get your, your band-aids on your, on your flesh. Jesus holds us and we have a standing in Christ. And there's no, therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? Be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, trying to be a good religious Jew or a good religious Christian, but that which is through faith in Christ, active receptive trust. Saving faith is a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. Calvin said it's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. Lord, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. My mom didn't help me any, but on that, because she was kind of always, always, you know, my dad or whatever, my pastor didn't help me. But it's on me. I can't fix it. That's the hard thing. Number one, we can't, sin doesn't exist anymore because you can't use that word because it's considered to be very, uh, politically incorrect. And then if you can get to the sin concept across without using that word, everybody thinks they can do it themselves. DIY. Salvation is not a DIY process. Well, otherwise Christ died needlessly. But having a standing in Christ, not having a righteousness based on my church going or me being a nice moral person, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, the perfect righteousness, which comes from God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, okay? But to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly. Here's the thing. To be saved, you've got to be ungodly. You've got to recognize you're ungodly, and you can realize you can't fix it. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's our invitation. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Trust in Jesus Christ alone, and he'll save you right where you sit. But he will give you a whole new capacity now to serve him, and he expects you to. So, all right? Good. Back to Benjamin. Boy, there's a lot of truth in that verse, in there? Verse 27 there. King Saul and the Apostle Paul, verse 28 ends this portion of this chapter. All these are the source of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father on his deathbed, he's going to die a couple of verses later, at age 147, so that's pretty good, uh, said to them when he blessed them. You know, some of this wasn't so much blessing, but it's always blessing to know truth. Sometimes the truth hurts. It's called tough love. And he blessed them, each one with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. I'm about to see Abraham and Isaac, and you got to come next week. Okay, Lana, you got to come next week to see how that works out uh, in the rest of chapter 49 into chapter 50. So let's close this way. How in the world was Jacob able to accurately, although somewhat generically, Describe the trajectory of each of these men and their tribes. How was he able to do that? Because God allowed him to have a prophetic insight, direct divine revelation, and it all works out. But the big story here is back in the 19th century B.C. then, according to uh, Paul Tanner, who was the academic uh, uh, dean of Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary when I got to teach there a few times, uh, Jacob died in 1859... B.C., you know, when I hear 1859, I'm thinking like right after the Civil War, but a long time ago, but back in the 19th century B.C. for these fellows, and now for us in the 21st century, for us, our destiny is God's design, so let's get with the program. Now, in the Old Testament, folks were saved by putting their faith in the promised Savior, and we showed you one big brick in that picture, for thus, folks on this side of the cross were saved by Faith in the provided Savior, right? Because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. But let me say a word as I close about our destiny. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, um, God has a unique destiny for you. 
And in that, that Ephesians passage, we quote a lot about salvation, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Next verse says, for we are his workmanship. The Greek is poema. It means work of art. It's hard. I can see angels' work of art. I can see Debbie's work of art. Hard for me to think of myself as a work of art, unless you're talking about modern art, really weird art, you know. But every believer is a work of art because God has a special destiny. I thought I was going to be a, a, a dentist, and I ended up being a preacher. And that was a shock to my parents and my mother-in-law. I mean, but she took it so well. My, my dad wasn't quite sure he could deal with that, and it took him a while to figure that out. He kept thinking I was going to go back and finish dental school. I'm not going. I'm not going back. I'm sorry. I might try to play golf again, but I'm not going to do that. But... Uh, and then, so that's Ephesians 2. And Ephesians 4, save time here, in verses 11 through 16, he says, Hey, God gives certain leadership gifts to the church, apostles, pastor, teachers, evangelists, but he gives each person abilities to do things that they should plug into something bigger than just their family and their job, but to the body of Christ, to the local church. And so I'm going to tell you that God's plan, God's destiny for Dustin and for Angel and for Julie and for Ron, uh, is big. And it should involve us plugging big into God's program. And God works through the Boy Scouts at times, and he works through the United Way at times. But the institution that Christ established to work in the world wasn't the United Way, wasn't the Boy Scouts, it was the capital C Church of all colors, cultures, denominations, generations, um uh, who are born-again believers in Christ, right? That's a capital C church. And the lower C church, you're sitting in one right now. Not the building, but the group of believers here. And then we've got like 80 different churches in Duncan, lowercase c. But God wants you to invest big in the local church. Hopefully it's this one. If you don't like this one, find a better one and make it even better, you know. But plug in. Uh, we live in a culture that likes to watch sports. I, I love to watch sports. I'm not very good at sports anymore, if I ever was. But we kind of become, you know, Christianity is not a spectator sport, okay? It, it begs for our involvement, and we we ought to be living for the one who died for us. And you look around uh, a church like this one, you might think, well, I'm going to go to a big church because uh, they're going to have paid staff to do everything for us. You know, even in big churches with paid staff, it's always the people that are real people, not ministers. That's the way people think of us sometimes, that really make it work. In a smaller church, it's even more critical that we all kind of get active. Look around for things you can do. And if you can't think of anything, I guarantee you, Dale or Debbie Corbin or I can tell you some stuff you could do to help us. Uh, you know, we talk about our purpose, objectives, and goals every year. But, uh, you know, on the back of your bulletin, we have this secret mechanism for you. You know, our spiritual engine isn't uh, a given pastor. Pastors come and go. But every individual believer... Homer Cox is a great example. Ginny Heath's a good example. Abiding in Christ, so you're not just cranking out dead good works, and the Word as a lifestyle, being committed to positive plugged-in involvement in this church. If this isn't right for you, go find one you can plug into. But don't just sit on the side and criticize people's rowing techniques, right? Everybody needs to be in the canoe, pulling on the oars. So we're building this thing up, and not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but also in other ministries activities. There's a lot of ways you can do that. And then number two, God's plan for every believer, put your name in the blank there, is big. But God's plan, not just for you, but for the capital C church, is bigger, right? Much less for human history. And it's a big plan, and we are so blessed to be just a little part of it, right? Uh, 
uh, all colors, cultures, denominations, generations who are born again are all part of this family. And we need to see the church, both the capital C church and the individual local churches, as a vehicle to glorify God, not promoting somebody's pastoral career, publishing career, music career. Uh, we're, all we are is just uh, glorified water boys up here, right? It's not about me getting my way. It's not about entertainment. It's about something much bigger than that. So, another cliffhanger. you got to come back and see how Jacob dies next week. Or you can read ahead. But Lord willing, we'll be here. Try to tell you about it. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I want to give you praise for your love, mercy, and goodness. And we uh, rest in the fact that our destiny is your design because you know and control the future. Just uh, surely as in Joseph's life, in uh, 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 Dustin uh, Wiley's life, or Lori McCann's life, or in uh, uh, Danny Pollock's life. Just uh, reassure us of that and empower us in that direction. We thank you for your grace in saving us through faith alone and Christ alone and for your grace in the Christian life so we can do the things you want us to do and we can be the persons you want us to be. As we fed on your word today, Father, shrink our egos, uh, expand our capacity to think your thoughts so we would better glorify you and how we think, how we live as we serve our living King Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.